Language and Power podcast episode eight, Anxiety, Anger and Care. In this podcast series, we look closely at the language being used in and around COP26. According to the official website, the COP26 summit will bring parties together to accelerate action towards the goals of the Paris Agreement and the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. Language is crucial to understanding the climate crisis, to formulating solutions and negotiating political and economic pitfalls. It's crucial to communicating science findings and recognising the social, political and economic conditions which have brought us to crisis point. Language is interaction that can accelerate action. But language is also performance and performances can be used to distract from inaction, to avoid action or postpone it. And language is what we focus on in this podcast. Hello, I am Michael Farrelly. I teach English language at the University of Hull and I research and write on issues of discourse, politics, policy and sustainability. I'm joined as always by Tom Bartlett. Hi, Tom. Hi there, I'm Tom Bartlett from the University of Glasgow. I'm also a discourse analyst and interested in uh, discourses of the environment and looking at the way different people speak about the environment and how we can foster ways for people to speak across their disciplines and to bridge divides to them way they talk. Thanks. And we're also delighted to be joined by our second guest of the week, Kate Smith, who is also at the University of Hull and has been at COP26. Hi, Kate. Hello. Would you like to say a word or two about yourself? Hi. Yeah, I'm uh, Kate Smith. I'm a postdoc researcher uh, within the Flood Innovation Centre, which is part of the Energy Environment Institute at the University of Hull. Um, I'm kind of a socio-hydramidist and I do discourse analysis type things in relation to people and behaviour and environments. Great, thank you for that and it's really good to have you on. Um, I think what we're going to talk about today are uh, representations of anxiety, representations of anger and potentially also uh, thinking about uh, care as a way of uh, responding to climate crisis. We've got a couple of texts that we will respond to, but first of all, uh, Kate, you've been at, you were at COP twenty six last week, so I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how you found it, why you were there, uh, and, and what you did at COP twenty six. Thanks, Michael. I was so I was there with. Uh colleagues from the Risky Cities project, which is a major uh, major multidisciplinary interdisciplinary project running out of Hull, um, headed by Professor Brian Donner. Um, one of the collaboration partners that Risky Cities has is the National Youth Theatre. And we put in some funding earlier this year to take a performance to COP26 with National Youth Theatre and found out I think we were given six weeks to uh, confirmation that they were going to be going to COP26 and so uh, a research and development process and writing process was very rapidly mobilised. A cast was cast and crew were bound and creative producers played. I was brought in to do the monitoring and evaluation leading to kind of project specific outputs and also some academic ones as well. So I have been trying to find out about what the process of this performance and the things that have led to it were like for the young people who were involved. So National Youth had a group of, I think, about 15, 18 to 25-year-olds um, from very diverse backgrounds and the diverse levels of experience in theatre and technical production. Um, so I've been talking to them and trying to find out a little bit about 
about how it's been for them and what it has meant to them uh, having this. So the process was we got some of the academics in Hull to do a few introductory uh, sort of lectures really online about hydrology, how water works in the landscape, how water works in different kinds of landscape and how water, mm. how that will change under climate change. So we did a knowledge drop on National Youth Theatre and then left them alone for a couple of weeks to come up with a performance about it um, with very mm. little very little input into the shape that that performance actually took. So it was a really, really nice surprise to see what they came up with last Friday in the green zone. Oh, I'm, not, I'm annoyed to miss that. That sounds brilliant. But I, I love the way you're describing that because it talks on some of the themes you've been talking about as taking messages in, in one voice or from one position. So the scientific voice, the way scientists represent stuff and the, the, the knowledge and authority they need to be able to take up that position and then totally changing it, taking that message and how do you create it in a totally different medium so through the performance, but with young people speaking and totally changing the message and how, how to translate between them. It'd be really interesting to hear some, some, some of your thoughts about that whole performance and how, how it was able to recontextualize the scientific information later on. Yeah, well, it was, it was a, it, it was, the performance was called On the Edge. And to be honest, we were, as academics, we were on the edge of what we were comfortable with because we normally hold quite fast to our knowledge and we let it be reproduced only in certain language-read yeah. ways. But this was a very different experience that we, we dumped the knowledge and then looked for people in a room, metaphorically, to, to come up with something. And that's what they came up with was not what we expected. I love that all. idea of letting go because normally we're scared mm. that people trivialize our knowledge or misrepresented and we like it's being our very technical terms and all that so letting it go letting someone else run with it is very brilliant thing to do yeah yeah and we can put a link to that i think in the uh yeah i can i can provide the it's on you can watch the whole it's thing back on, on them YouTube. yeah well on the theme of 15 to 25 year olds uh we've got a couple of texts um that uh, represent uh, emotions, uh, responses uh, to, to, to how people might be feeling about the prospect uh, of the actually existing consequences of climate change and then a future which might, sh which might become worse, um, likely to become worse. So the first one is a UKRI, that's the, the national funding body, a body that oversees research funding in, in the United Kingdom. And within that, there are research councils uh, in a number of disciplinary, broad disciplinary areas. And one of those is the Natural Environment Research Council, NERC. And they recently put out a call or, a, or a, an intention to, to launch a programme. And so we're going to have a look at the call, first of all. So this is the, the, the headline on the website. We'll put a link in the description. Programme launched to tackle climate anxiety in young people. And it says, I'll read the first part of it out. The Natural Environment Research Council, NERC, is launching a new public engagement program for young adults concerned about the environment. This comes as part of UK research and innovations contribution to the United Nations Climate Change Conference, COP26. The COP26 Eco Anxiety Digital Engagement Project, entitled Our Stories, Our Systems, will facilitate two way engagement between environmental science researchers and eco-anxious young adults. The project will connect young people aged 15 to 25 across the UK with UKRI funded researchers to tell their climate stories. 
Through discussing both environmental science research and emotions surrounding climate change, the project will enable young people to positively apply climate science to their everyday decision-making and outlook on the future. So we'll, we'll start with that opening um, section and we'll maybe have a look at another section in a little while. What do we think about this and the way that this is representing young people? It's very, it's decided, hasn't it? They've decided that the emotion young people experience predominantly is anxiety. Um, and that's, that it's framed very much as that as young people, young people's response to climate change is anxiety. And we can make that better by helping them with our science. Yeah. Um, it's really interesting, really interesting words used to describe how people feel so it's this is for young young adults concerned about the environment and it's focusing very much on their uh, concern and how you tackle that concern um without necessarily talking about what's causing that anxiety or tackling the, the the cause of the anxiety, and, and this is a theme that we keep coming back to and back to throughout what we've been looking at in, in, in these in this podcast series. That you have a separation between the cause of climate change is and what the consequences of climate mm. change is, and I think what we're seeing is a theme. We see it here too, that a lot of the discourse is focused on engaging with the consequences, and of course. We're going to have to engage with the consequences. We do have to engage with consequences. But what's always missing or very often missing is the cause. And so, you know, thinking about this to, to, to start with, if you were to say you've got a problem and it's causing you anxiety, what would you, how would you start solving that problem? Well, you try and remove the cause of the anxiety, in this case, climate change. But what this is not, and that's not what the, what's happening here. It frames anxiety as a decision-making problem. As much yeah. as oh, as much yeah. as anything else, I think, by right? the the implication of linking those two ideas together, that we have people with anxiety and we have people with knowledge, and we can use the people with knowledge to apply climate science to the anxious people's everyday decision making. Um, yeah, yeah, really interesting. Sets up anxiety as being something that is resolved by decision making. That's decision making. So it's dealing, yeah, with, yeah. dealing with the problem in a different way rather than removing the problem almost, isn't it? It's not really counting the problem, it's managing to live with it. And decision-making, and that, that sentence there, it's very much about personal behaviour again. You can, you can get this anxious by recycling your plastic. Uh, it's not really a cure for the, the, the troubles of the world. It's just you, you just feel a bit better about it. So, yeah, I think it's not really tackling the problems so much as your responses to the, the way you feel about the problems. That's not the whole answer at all, is it? Mm -hmm. If we go on to the next section of this, because I think this is also important, it says the next part of this is tackling an important problem. Recent research, and there is a link, so we'll have a look at where that links to. Recent research has shown that nearly half of young people report feeling distressed or anxious about the climate in a way that affects their daily lives. Whilst this anxiety is a logical reaction to the climate crisis, it increases young people's risk of experiencing mental and physical health problems. It can also sometimes act as a barrier to taking positive action against climate change. As the UK is currently hosting COP26, it is essential that we address the emotional toll that the climate crisis is taking on young people. 
So again, the central part of that is about getting people's um, anxiety resolved so that then they can um, take positive action against climate change. And I, what do you, do both of you think about that, uh, that framing of, of the situation? Uh, Tom. Oh, uh, interesting. Well, is it, going back to a point Kate made when we were speaking before, this, that this was research that was carried out by, by, by psychologists, uh, I think. And so, so it's quite natural that they might focus on these particular ideas that people are more anxious and it's connected to the environment. Uh, but it's in a way then how it's recontextualized and amplified and picked up on, because not all scientific research is picked up on, but this suits a government narrative, let's say, because it says, okay, anxiety is a personal problem. You can conquer that. You can soothe it. It's an individual problem, really. So it suits the government to say, you can, you know, you can improve the environment and improve yourself in this, this narrow way. It's not to say that research is invalid at all. It's to say that how much it's amplified and how it's used uh, can be distorted. Mm, yeah, yeah. Did you want to say anything, Kate, on that? Well, just to kind of run on from that, that, that general move to the aggregation of risk to the individual within yeah. recent years. It's, I, this is very much part of, I see this very much as another move in that same direction. This is, this is a problem experienced by individuals who need to be soothed, um, yeah. possibly placated, that might be over-reading it, and who need to be yeah. soothed into feeling better. Yeah. And that, yeah. <clears throat> that is part of a wider discourse around the aggregation of risk and the abrogation mm. of responsibility by municipal yeah. beings. Yeah, yeah, I think that's really important. I think what what I what I was thinking when it when we, as we were reading and looking at this is it, it looks like a form of victim blaming of the people who are going to experience climate change, yeah. uh, perhaps most strongly, are people who are uh, in their younger years because they're going to see more of it and and, and more uh, changes, more negative changes uh, in their lifetime than perhaps some of the the older people amongst us are, and this is. Um, the way that this is this describes the situation is well, I'll say it again, it can also sometimes act as a barrier to taking positive action against climate change. So you've got a classic kind of victim blaming um, framing there. It's almost saying that it's if you're anxious, you're partly to blame for climate change because you're not taking the positive action that is needed. Um, and if there's anything that's going to increase anxiety for anybody, for all of us who are feeling um, cross, angry, uh, frustrated with the lack of action on climate change, it's telling you, the powerless, that your powerlessness is, a, is at fault for, um, for, the, for the situation. And we can all see that it isn't. So I think there's a, you know, a really, really um, um, pernicious framing there of, of young people. It's uh, this in framework, people often talk about resilience, which is now a very popular word in all sorts of government and stuff. And uh, critical analysts, discourse analysts love it because it's, if, there's a, if you are suffering, you need to make yourself more resilient rather than changing the root of the problem. Mm. It's your fault. It's very personal. It's not societal. It's not systemic. It's personal. You increase your resilience. And in a way, it's this, this victim blaming that you're talking about. It reminds me of something I think of quite often back in the days, previous days of very high unemployment. We used to have the job clubs 
where you had to go to job clubs to be taught how to write a CV, you had to be taught how to apply for jobs, and you had to do all this training. There weren't any more jobs created. There were still mm. a million people applying for 100,000 jobs. It won't change anything in terms of numbers. It will just shift the blame and, you know, uh, and make people feel, feel worse, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, on, clearly if people are, are, are suffering um, from mental health problems, you need to, you need to um, help them with that. But this is framed as though helping them with that problem is not, is not, just, to, it's not just to sort of help them on a personal level, but in order to then solve, prob- solve climate change. It's a strange um, distortion of who has the power when it comes to taking action on climate change, uh, I think. Um, let's have a look at the research because so this is a call. This is a, a program that's being launched by the UKRI in, in, in collaboration with NERC. They do this. This does link to a report of the research, which links to when you click the hyperlink on that, it takes you to a BBC report of some academic research. And what I wanted just very briefly to say about that is that one of the quotes from um, the researchers is governments need to listen to the science but not pathologize young people who feel anxious so i think that's important to bear in mind the people who did the research are not saying right let's pathologize the young people and and, and um make it uh, make that the focus of our attention actually the the problem here is that the governments need to listen to science and do something and that will end the cause of the anxiety but the the research that's then been picked up by the research council seems to go in a different direction. Does that seem right? I, 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 yeah, I completely agree. I think it, it, it's useful for the difficult feelings that young people experience to be identified as anxiety because that mm. puts it in a particular section of things. This, these are how we deal with these things. In fact, if yeah. they called it trauma, which I think is probably more accurate, if it was uh, recognised as trauma, then that would register much more yeah. seriously on the scale of how bad this feeling is. Anxiety is something that you have if you're a little bit oversensitive. And again, it's, it's a personal weakness rather than you know, that's the frame. We all know that that's not actually true, um, but it's very much framed as being, you know, you need to, I think Tom, you said it's a, you need to pull your boots off or have a stiff up lip. And that, that is not the appropriate response here. I think if it was, if the headline from that research was young people are very traumatized by their future, then that would lead to me, that would lead to a different level of engagement with the rest of the research community and with the people who have power to affect change. Yeah, yeah. I think you're right. Tom, we've got a, a very different framing from someone we spoke about in yesterday's podcast, former president of the United States, President Obama, and he's got a different response. Do you want to speak to that one, Tom? Yeah, very, very briefly, just as a comparison. Um, And the headline is, Obama tells young people to stay angry on climate fight. And this is from the BBC reporting of Obama's speech. But I think we've got, if we're talking about the emotional words that we use here, if we use the the analytical framework I've mentioned before, appraisal, which talks about... uh, these evaluative words as belonging to the emotions, belonging to judgment of behavior in moral and social terms, and appreciation if things function or not, then anxiety and anger are both clearly to do with the emotions and to show the lack of happiness that is a bad state to be in terms of happiness. So they seem similar at that level. But if we if we take it a bit further and think about how you counter these actions, 
you know, with anxiety, you pull yourself together. It's your personal responsibility, really. It's an overreaction to a situation. I'm like traumatized. But if you're angry, uh, how do you conquer anger? It's not by just pulling yourself together. It's to, to go and fight. And actually, your balance is to stay angry on the fight against climate change. So it's encouraging people to, to, to not just feel better within themselves and get on with it, but to actually go and challenge the causes more that this actually is a fight and there's an enemy and this is the underlying causes of climate change and climate change. And I think what I think just noticing more and more, he tells him to stay angry, not to get angry, but to stay angry. In other words, not to conquer that anger. Whereas when you've got, no one is saying to the kids, stay anxious. It's cure your anxiety. But he's saying stay angry because this anger can actually be a positive. It's needed and it needs to carry on in order to do that. And I, I just find that, that, a different way of looking at emotions interesting. And I know we're coming back to that, but I just can't resist a couple of other things about this Obama speeches. First of all, he's an ex-politician, which gives him the right to criticize other politicians in a way that no one else can do. He's got all the kudos being a politician, but he hasn't got the responsibility of making sure he doesn't tread on anyone's feet to the same extent. And he does that. And this comes across quite nicely. The Pope refers to him as chiding China and Russia like a grandfather or an uncle chides his children. So this idea of the elder statesman, a totally different capital to modern day politicians. And he, he really draws on that. And just to finish off on that, the way we talked about, I think yesterday or the day before, when we talked about his Facebook handle, where he refers to himself as father, husband, politician, activist, in that order that he's a totally different persona. As first of all, he's a family man and he is giving advice to the kids as an uncle rather than the politician. But it's quite unusual advice. He's saying, stay angry. It's not your normal avuncular advice. There's, there's a lot just going on in what Obama's doing now and his position and his, the capital, the, his position that allows him to, to say these things and, and for it to be heard. Mm. Kate, did you want to add anything to that? I think, I think it, it's interesting that as a former president of the US and as a former politician, he's the only person who's of that, of that kind of stature and status, who's been able to reject the dominant discourse of mm. basically business as usual with a few tweaks and actually yeah. coming out and loudly. Well, other people have said it, but it hasn't really been reported very much and he's managed to, to mm. pick up the headlines on that. Mm. Um, his voice has been heard as somebody that was in that seat of power and still is, but it's soft power now, but he has chosen to exercise that in a way that goes counter to the dominant discursal modes of expression. Yeah, 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 that's a good point. Just have a quick um, thought, one more quick thought. I know we've got another motion to talk about, but just a quick thought as you're thinking about this, we've talked about the way that papers have changed their stance. We talked about the Daily Mail yesterday, surprisingly pro-reactivist, pro-Greta. And I think there might be something here that Previously, she was being represented as an anxious teenager. We talked about anxious being connected with women, but I think anxious is connected with teenagers a lot as well. So when she was being portrayed as anxious, she fit this stereotype of the anxious, overthought teenager, and she'd go out of it, and she should just go back to school. Now she's been represented more as angry. I think we see this maybe a trend, and anger is a more positive evaluation of someone. And just throwing that in there, that I think we've seen that shift of how the popular press views Greta, which would just... Just of interest there that struck me, but I know that Kate, you were talking about a third, instead of anger as being the opposite of anxiety, going back to the, the, the reason you're in Glasgow or we're in Glasgow, mm. you, you were talking about a third emotional representation. Yeah, well, the, the, we expected the young people to come up with a performance that 
that was about eco-anxiety and they didn't. They were angry, they were worried, they were frightened and frustrated, but they were mostly angry. Um, and that, within their performance, they actually embodied the physical change of somebody going from being anxious, term scared, term frightened, and they physically embodied that as being small and their, their kind of performance of that anxiety was quite noticeable that they were this was somebody that looked kind of weaker and then as the performance went on the narrative that they developed was that care and connection was where the solution would be found but you use that you use the anger to build connections and to establish ways of caring for each other and their physical demeanor as that became the dominant narrative in the performance, their physical way of presenting that changed, and they all looked stronger, actually. And I've only, I mean, just realizing that that was probably deliberate, a part of their, they probably did that, not reaction. Um, and by the end of the piece, we were left with the very clear impression that the problem isn't anxiety, the problem is disconnection. Mm. And the solution is connection forged in the heat of anger, really. Um, and that young people are not just worrying, they're not just being young people and gloomy teenagers, they're legitimately angry and that they will mobilise, they will do something about that. Brilliant. Yeah, really interesting. Um, we've seen we've seen a, a few other examples from some of the, the speakers earlier in the, in the podcast series um, talking about where we looked at metaphors of being broken hearted and those cracks being filled with gold mm. of the gold of community. Do you remember that, Tom? Yeah. And this is the same sort of idea. Yeah. So <clears throat> I'm, I'm sure listeners to this will be aware of the reports that have been at the, um, some of the civil society observers within the blue zone were not able to access sessions as they expected. But obviously I am a mere humble academic. I only had access to the green zone. And then even within that, it was very obvious that this was a cordoned up, a very bounded space. I think we probably got every single bit of security fencing in Glasgow surrounding the car park. And it was a very, it felt quite hostile, actually, as a, as a space and as a place. It was not nice. It wasn't a nice place to come and go. It didn't feel like, once we were in the building, it was quite welcoming and there were some nice information and some nice signs. Um, and the hashtag together for our planet was, was over everything, but we weren't together for our planet. We weren't allowed outside without being photographed by the police photograph and bollards that were all around the perimeter. We couldn't go on the balcony and there were police patrols up and down the Clyde. And I can, t I totally understand the need for the level of security because mm. we live in a time of heightened risk, but it didn't feel like we were all part of one great big thing at all. It was quite segregated away from the main, the main Bloom Zone COP26 events, which you couldn't actually tell from within the bits of the Green Zone that I was able to access. You couldn't really tell that there was anything else happening at all. And it wasn't, didn't feel like it, we were very together for our planet. And I, I think part of the cynicism that I left with is that in that contrast that the production that our young people came up with had 
care and connection at its core as being a really strong way of responding and yet the physical reality of being the bit part in the green zone was one of apartness and uh, kind of sidelining really mm. that's really powerful kate thanks for thanks for telling us that account of what you've what you've seen no wonder um, it connects with so many of the ideas you're touching yeah. on and I wish we had time to pick up on all those because there's so many things that you said there that we, we could talk about at length, but unfortunately not. Yeah. 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 I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd want to, I mean, just to sort of bring, bring discourse back into, to, you know, to talk directly about discourse. One of the theories of critical discourse analysis is that you, if you have a discourse, a way of seeing things, sometimes that leads to a way of doing things and a way of feeling or being about things you know there's a kind of a, a relationship that that, that uh, cycles through mm. from one to the other um and in this case the danger is we've we, i mean we've talked about three different discourses of 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 emotion towards uh, climate change we've had uh, anxiety we've had anger and we've had caring and solidarity, I guess, is a, is a way of mm. talking about that. And if you take anxiety as your starting point, then you're going to do things that yeah. see anxiety as the, as the the main problem, and you're going to start acting as though that's the way. And that's going to cycle into in a, into a into a set of events which doesn't look likely to actually resolve any problems. But I think actually more powerfully is this is this idea of, of caring for each other and coming together and forming community bonds of togetherness. That will embody that caring, which it would seem to me would stand a very good chance of doing things in a in a way that may be better for um, for our for our societies and our our, our future. But um, yeah, that's uh, interesting. Mm. Shall we go to soundbite of the day? Soundbite of the day. <laughs> <Christ>. <laughs> Thanks, Tom. So this is this is from a, a tweet, and I will put this in again in the link. And it says uh, this: Here is a problem which transcends our particular generation. It is an intergenerational problem. If we don't do the right thing now, our children and grandchildren will face serious problems. So that's my soundbite of the day. It was said by Carl Sagan, and it was said in 1985. Mm. And I, I just want to use this to express the kind of frustration that I've been feeling of, over this climate change is that we've known about this and people have been saying these sorts of things for a very, very, very long time. Mm. Before many of the people were talking about here, the 18 to 25 year olds were born. And yet we're still saying the same things. I think there is, there is, in, I know you're trying to wind it up and I don't want to, I don't want to crash your, your um, serious ending. But as I was a child when that was written, and I was the only person in my school who was in Friends of the Earth, and I was the only person who stood on a Green Party ticket in our mock elections, and actually I have huge hope for systemic change on the basis that all the people who are doing our national youth theatre performance, they're all going to be voting next year and the year after and the year after that. So actually we're not, it'll take a while, but I really do more than ever. I believe that some fundamental systemic change will be happening as a result of this, because you don't live through the experience of this without being different. 
So we've got hope entering the uh, discussion yes. of emotions here as well. That's a good way to draw to your close. Yeah, that is. That's great. Uh, Kate, it's been really fantastic speaking with you and, and hearing about your experience and hearing your um, points of view on the text that we've looked at. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Enjoy. Thank you. Thank you. Um, thanks, Tom. See Thank you again you. tomorrow. See you tomorrow. Bye.